Folks, this is Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't, coming to you once again here from Arlington, Texas. Actually, uh, today's show is kind of a throwback. Uh, I'm going to give you a new introduction, tell you a little bit about my thoughts at the time that I was doing this and what I was trying to say, and uh, then I'm going to play. An episode that I recorded in August of 2008 from the car. I'm going to warn you right now, uh, this episode is uh, crappy audio quality. Even not crappy uh, because it was in the car. Crappy because it was in the first few months I was doing the show and I hadn't really sorted out how to get the audio, audio quality as good as it could be in the car yet. So it's echoey, it reverbs, it's got some tinniness to it. It's But... Um, I've been asked a lot of questions lately about how I knew back in 2008, get out, get out, get out, that the, the economy was fixing to go off a cliff. This show really is one of the more in-depth shows about the reasons that it was coming. So I thought I would rebroadcast that because today I'm on the road with the RV on my way up to Arkansas and there was just no way to cram a show into Friday. So I did an intro on Thursday, which you're hearing right now, and uh, and then just rebroadcast this. And occasionally maybe I'll do this once in a while. There's over 650 episodes now, so there's some great material back there we could pull out and, and maybe look at it in a new frame of reference today. Hopefully that'll be the way that this is for you. Before we do that, though, let's go ahead and take care of our daily housekeeping. Housekeeping item one today, let's take care of our sponsors they do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one, ShelfReliance.com. Notice I said shelf like something you put stuff on, not self like your individual self. ShelfReliance.com is one of the most innovative food storage companies I've ever seen with great food rotation racks that allow you very easily to eat what you store and store what you eat. So check out ShelfReliance.com and make sure you check out their Thrive brand of storage food. Uh, more variety and more selection than any other long-term storage food uh, p- provider that I've ever seen. It's amazing the variety and the things they have. And it's really not just things that you would typically think of for long-term storage food. It's a lot of the food that you eat every day packaged for long-term storage. Extremely long shelf, right? Number 10 cans. Same thing you normally think of in that world, but different varieties and options with your foods. Check it out and you'll see what I mean. Next up today, silverandgoldshop.com. Remember, I, I believe that silver and gold should make 5 to 10% of your total wealth up. And uh, I think that a great way to add some diversity to your silver collection are some of the wonderful silver rounds that Mary Beth Maidmont offers you at silverandgoldshop.com. Absolutely top-notch service, top-notch uh, customer care, uh, great pricing, great delivery. Everything you could ever want dealing with someone in the metals industry, you'll find at silverandgoldshop.com. Also consider joining the Member Support Brigade. You do that, you get exclusive content available only to members, and you help support the show at about 20 cents an episode. Uh, with that, let's go ahead and get into uh, to, to, you know kind of my introduction of myself, right? I did this show uh, two and a half years ago, August of 2008, however many months ago that is. At the time, I'd been doing the Survival Podcast a little bit of June, all of July, and some of August. So fully about maybe two full months of actually doing the show. 
And one of the big drivers that I had back then was as I was looking at the United States economy and going, this is bad. And this is bad in a way that nobody wants. And I had been talking to financial advisors, and they wouldn't admit it. And I was talking to entrepreneurs and saying, man, you got to get your business a survival plan in place for your business. you got to like, like looking to start cut things now. You got And no one was going to accept that it was really that bad. They thought it was already bad. By August, it was already bad. This was That was the recession. And I was like, no, this is going to be falling off a cliff. And people wanted to know how. Well, this show went into a lot of the things that I understood at the point that were clearly taking us there. The surplus in housing lots. Um, how uh, I could look at so much commercial new construction going in, but nobody was taking residence in the buildings. That the money had been made as cheap as it could be made, and the only thing you could do was make it a little bit cheaper, and that's what we would be in for for a long time to come. Um, the harsh reality that every business must face when revenue and business declines. You're going to cut people, and if you cut people, it's going to create a cascading effect. That as houses became foreclosed upon, they would also create a cascading effect. And, 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 you know, it was just, I don't know. To me, it was so blatantly obvious. So now with hindsight, as you listen to about 30 minutes of this from, again, August of 2000, remember, the big crash was September. This was a month before the big crash. This wasn't after it all happened. This was one wasn't everybody when everybody was saying, I told you so. This was when everybody was saying, oh, we got no place to go from here but up. That's what was going on in mainstream back then. This is when Susie Orman was saying, stay the course. Stay the course. I was told the other day my Susie Orman impression sounds more like Mickey Mouse than Susie Orman. There's a reason it's supposed to. I think that her advice is about as valuable as the financial advice you would get from freaking Mickey Mouse. In fact, Mickey Mouse might give you better financial advice. But here we go. Jack Spierko in the car, crappity audio and all, including the introduction with uh, Another Day, Another Dollar. Hope you enjoy it. I'll see you again on Monday. Another day, another dollar Makes you wonder where your money went You can scream and you can holler Hello, this is Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. You got me on a gloomy evening. I like to be south from Frisco down to uh, Arlington, Texas from my mobile studio, which is my highly efficient 2006 Volkswagen Jetta. And uh, once again, we're here with the Survival Podcast, uh, which is one man's view of a changing world and changing economic times. The things we can do to live a better life if times get tough. Or even if they don't. Uh, today's subject, I want to talk a little bit about the economy. I've kind of broken away from that for a while, but uh, after my vacation, I got into work this morning and uh, sat down at my desk, and uh, a copy of the Dallas Business Journal, which every uh, entrepreneur that wants to be in touch with the pulse of Dallas-Fort Worth tends to read around here, weekly publication. And what I want to explain before I start talking about uh, five stories that I saw in there. I mean, I don't know, hold on a second. Four stories that I saw in this one edition of this weekly paper is that the Dallas Business Journal is generally not in the business of talking about the negative things. They are, uh, you know, in the business of talking about the positive aspects of doing business in, in Dallas. 
they're not your typical newspaper. They they do a lot with profiling new businesses and profiling new opportunities and talking about new uh, bids and how great the telecom sector and the technology sector is rebounding and all the positive aspects. But when an economy's in trouble and you report on the news of the business of the economy, sooner or later you have to kind of talk about what's really going on. Now, this edition was actually remarkably positive. It's a fairly large publication. There was a lot of uh, stories. I would say there's probably 30 or 40 uh, main stories throughout the entire thing. It's a fairly thick uh, weekly publication. But there were four stories that were glaring, and I'm going to start with the the home page. And again, I want to also preface this, folks, and I want to talk about kind of the trouble that we're in for so people take their preparation a little more seriously. And if again, as you know, I'm not big on this whole, you know, complete, total economic crash where people are, you know, driving around and stolen, uh, you know, uh, Bradley vehicles and burning down houses. But I am of the belief that we can see a major, major economic depression in this country, something that might be a real combination of the 1970s and the 1930s put together, uh, what's been termed the Greater Depression. And uh, on top of all this, though, remember that my area, Dallas-Fort Worth, is one of the most successful uh, regions in the United States right now. Our housing market is remarkably stable. We've done better than most. Uh, our economy is being heavily fueled by the, uh, the gas exploration uh, that's being successfully executed in the Barnett Shale, which is probably the largest uh, natural gas structure in existence. Uh, in the world today that's it's got no reserves and actively being tapped on an ongoing basis. And these guys are pulling gas out of big, giant fields and residential areas right now. And because of that, even the residential areas, our residents are having very large uh, bonuses and royalties paid to them uh, as this gas is being extracted. So there's additional money going into the economy, not just in the jobs to do the extraction, but going to the homeowners that own the land that the extraction is being done on. This is one of the best markets in the United States today. It is right at the top. In fact, Plano, which is one of the suburbs of Dallas-Fort Worth, was just listed as the best city in the United States to become wealthy in, in the top ten list. They were number one. Okay, that's how good this is. Now, let me tell you the other side of this booming economy. Number one, the cover story of the Dallas Business Journal was that our lot supply, in other words, our our building lots, places where you can build houses, has hit a 100,000 number. We currently have over 100,000 residential lots ready to build on in Dallas-Fort Worth today, 100,000. Now, folks, when I lived up in Pennsylvania for a few years in the, uh, the, the Allentown, Bethlehem, Eastern area, there were about 100,000 people in that area, in that, that little, uh, little uh, metroplex, if you want to call it that. It really wasn't laid out like a metroplex, but that, that ADE area, as they call it, Eastern Pennsylvania, it was made up of about 100,000 people. We have 100,000 lots in a city of 4.2 million people, I think, right now. We're sitting there at 6.2 million people. We have 100,000 lots sitting there waiting to be developed, completely vacant, completely untouched. Uh, that is a supply for most of our city of more than five years. In other words, that will take care of their growth for more than five years. The number that this story said is optimum for the marketplace is two years. 
So it's a tenth of the suit. They said they have five years' worth of lots, and that's people think that we're going to kind of bottom out any time now. We're going to hit the bottom, and we're going to start recovering. Well, I mean, we haven't really seen the recovery kick in yet. So that's if everything stays as good as it is five years. And Fort Worth, was it Fort Worth? It was Fort Worth or possibly one of the uh, the suburbs north of Fort Worth, had like a 120-month supply. I think Fort Worth had like 80-month supply. One city in particular, maybe I'll add it in a future show or put it in the show notes, had a 120-month supply of lots waiting to be developed. That's not we have to push trees over. That's not we have to get utility easements. That's ready to build on lots, 100,000. That should really key you in to the fact that we are – really in kind of the doldrums, uh, about the lowest we could be in the real estate market, and that market affects everybody else. I mean, some of these other stories, I'm going to kind of drive that point home for you. And uh, like clockwork, we'll move into what the second story was. The second story, and again, you, folks, you've got to remember that this is one of the best markets in America today, this Dallas Forward Marketplace. Uh, banks are backing down on branch build-outs. In other words, all these little satellite banks that you see, you know, Bank of America building 20 new banks and, and things like that. In the state of Texas overall, they're building less banks. Uh, in fact, we've called it a bust. Uh, and I'm going to give you some hard statistics here. In 2003, where we hadn't fully kind of recovered from the, uh, the, the drop of 2001 yet, there were 282 new banks built in Texas. 2004? We built 426 new banks. 2005, we built 390 new banks in the state of Texas. 2006, we built 401 new banks in the state of Texas. And in 2007, we built 413 new banks in the state of Texas. Pretty good numbers and a pretty good growth curve going there. As of uh, July 31st, 2008, we've only had 122 new branch offices. Bank offices opened in the state of Texas, which if you do a little bit of math, it says that by the end of the uh, year, we should have about 209 new locations built. So we went from 413 in 2007 to 209 in 2008, a 50% reduction. Now, part of what you need to understand to really drive those figures home is right now the cost of commercial construction is lower than it's been in a long time. Land is available at a steal because the market's depressed. Labor is available out of steel because there's less building going on. So if you're looking to do a commercial project, now is a good time to do it. And money is cheaper than it's been in a very long time to borrow finance. And if you're a bank borrowing money, you know, you can do pretty good with terms. So the banks have the ability to build more locations right now if they want to. And the time to do it is good. And the reason these banks build these locations, all these little satellite locations, is their number one way to compete. In other words, you're more likely to do business with Bank of America if you happen to have a Bank of America location close to your home, close to where you shop, and close to work, than if it's just one of those three locations. So that's why they build all these little satellite locations. It's the number one way that they obtain capital by getting more and more people to do business with them, to open accounts with them. So it's a very important thing for a bank to do is to continuously expand that footprint, especially while the time is optimal. But they're not doing it. And the reason they're not doing it, folks, is because they're in touch with reality. Some of them are running out of money, and some of them realize it won't matter if you open up another location now. The times are tough anyway. So that's another thing that's going on there. Um, now, I've always said, and I've always told 
my listeners that we have to watch the real estate market because the real estate market fuels so many other marketplaces. One of the other marketplaces is the title insurance market, the title company market. Whenever you buy a piece of real estate, there has to be a search done on the title to make sure that it's valid, and somebody has to take care of transferring the title from the buyer to the seller. That's created an entire industry called the title company industry. Uh, the next story that I found in this issue of the Dallas Morning News, now again, remember, this, or not Dallas Morning News, the Dallas uh, Business Journal, and this one edition that all of this stuff's in. So a publication that strives to tell a positive story every time it can, all right, is the best, one of the best markets in America today. Real estate market uh, slams the title companies, and there's a whole article there that I won't get into detail, but honestly, the title industry is kind of a boring industry. You either need them or you don't. Uh, but basically, the title companies are taking a beating. They're having to cut staff, and their business is way down. It's less than half of what it was just a couple years ago when the market wasn't exactly booming. All right? Now, that's just one example. So the real estate companies are down. The banks are down. People are buying less. All right? The title companies are down. You have to think about this. Now, all the suppliers, too, the banks, all the suppliers to the title companies are also having less business because the first thing that these companies do is start to scale back operations. You have to scale back operations. You can't keep buying all the stuff you used to buy when your revenue goes down. Unlike the federal government that just borrows more money or prints more money, this is the real world of business. And when these entities have a decline in business, all right, then the, the entire market has to go down with them because they, they spend less. Just think about the bank rollout. What do we have going on now? We have a lot of construction companies that are really hurting. We have a lot of builders that are really hurting because since the banks are building less locations, there's less business for the companies that depend on those build-outs, and generally contractors kind of specialize. They will specialize in building banks. Building a bank is not like building a, a restaurant. There's certain things you have to do, certain codes that you have to follow, certain procedures that have to be followed when you build a bank. So there's builders that specialize in building banks. They're doing less business, so they scale back operations. They lay off people. Now, they find supplies from people who are on scene. You see, the whole thing is skidding right now in a downward spiral, and it's all being fueled one thing after another after another. And uh, then on top of this, this was the one that, that I read the story, and I didn't buy the explanation in the story. This one does not have anything to do with real estate directly. And the fact is that more and more banks, especially here in Texas, are getting out of the student loan business. Frost Bank, which happens to be a bank that I do business with, has decided, for instance, they're no longer going to do student loans. And there was one administrator quoted, I don't remember what school he worked with, he worked for a specific program at a specific school, and he had over 440 students that were depending on Frost Bank as their source of loans for student loans. All right? What this article inferred is that new limits by the federal government on interest and new limits on how much money the federal government will guarantee to the lender against the student loan have made the loan business of students less profitable, so more and more banks are shying away from it, leaving the students to have to go to other sources. So there's less money available to go to school. All right? Even if we believe that explanation, even if that explanation makes perfect sense, and I'm going to explain to you in a minute that it doesn't. I'm going to explain to you now how this is another rock against the economic wall to bring it down. Okay. 
Less students can borrow less money to go to colleges. Colleges earn less money. Colleges have to scale back their programs. They lay off employees and they cut spending. There are major suppliers that supply and do business with the colleges. They are going to see a decrease in their workload, so they lay off some of their workers and they scale back their operations. See, the whole point here is that we're in this consumer-driven economy. And in a future podcast, I'm going to explain to you how if we ever choose to have a revolution in this company, we, the consumers, we, the citizens, could use that as a weapon ourselves if we were willing to make sacrifices. I'm not going to go there today, but I want to plant that seed in your mind and get you thinking about that today because by the end of this week, I'm going to drop that on you and see what you think about it. All right? But the reality is, even without us using it as a weapon, even without it being part of a revolution in this company, a bloodless but not painless revolution, it still has its own life cycle that can occur anyway. And every time one segment in our sector is dinged and scaled back, it causes all the people that supply to that sector to have to scale back as well. I'm a business person. I run and build companies. Trust me, when I lose a major customer, when I lose a major source of revenue, or when my forecasted revenue growth doesn't come, I have to change the way I do business. And the only thing I can do at that point is to scale back my cost of operations. I only have two choices, more business or less cost. Right? Again, this is not the fantasy land of the freaking federal government printing money, borrowing money, stealing money, whatever. You know, great bookkeeping. I have to account for where my money comes from and where it goes. And I can't stay in business. I can't pay the people to work for me if that money goes away. Well, folks, guess what? That's how every other business in this country works. So when one goes down, they all go down. Now, let me tell you the real reason that I think the banks are staggering off the student loan business. There's no entity in this nation that has a better finger on the pulse of the economy and what is to come in the next five to ten years than the banks. The banks are all too painfully aware of the effects of depression and recession. They are the ones that bet the farm by loaning people money on all these loans, not just the bad loans. It's a subprime crap. It's gone. It's over with. It's pretty much flushed itself out. The people defaulting on loans today are people that borrowed legitimate paid for loans are defaulting today. It's not just adjustable arms. It's a guy that bought a house he had no problem affording when he was making $125,000, and even if he found a new job, now he's making seventy five and he can't afford the house anymore. And he's got to get out from under it. He can't sell it because the values come down. So he goes out and he rents or buys another place and he's abandoning it. That's what's happening. The banks see that every day. The banks know who's coming to them for money to borrow money for a small business loan. They have people putting prospectuses and business plans in front of them every day to evaluate the market sectors of the economy. The banks know that the economy is in for trouble. The banks know that they're in for trouble. And when you loan money to a student going to college, you look at that person and you say, this is what a degree is going to cost this person, and this is their legitimate expectation of earnings upon completion of a degree. That is how the decision as to how much money you're willing to loan them is made. In other words, if you want to go be a doctor, and I look at your, you know, your academic profile and I believe you have the potential to become a doctor, your earnings is much higher than, let's say, somebody that wants a degree in communications or a degree in just general business, right, with no specialization. 
So I'm going to loan one person more money than the other. I'm going to be willing to extend greater risk because their ability to repay me is going to be much higher. When the economy is going to have a major slide, a major depression, and I think we've only scratched the surface on how bad things are going to get before they have a chance to improve, the earnings potential of the graduate go down. We're getting to a point now where businesses are being forced to operate in the most efficient, direct manner possible to survive. The goal of businesses have gone from maximizing profits in the 90s to today, survival. The goal of an established business right now is survive. I hate to tell you that. I hate to put it that bluntly, but that's always the goal of business. But now it's the forefront goal. How can we survive the next 10 years? That's how they're thinking. And the banks are going, since the businesses are thinking that way, we better think that way too. And the place to bet your loan is not with the new graduate who's going to be coming out looking for a new job, who's going to be being paid half of what they're worth, even with no experience, because the business is going to put such a premium now on experience and say, we don't have time to train people. We don't have time to develop people. We have to hit the ground running right now. And the market for the new job seeker coming out of school is going to get tougher and tougher and harder and harder as we see a greater economic depression. And because of that, the banks are going, I don't want the money there. I don't want to bet on these kids. So, you know, there's four stories for you, four stories that reinforce what I've been telling you for a long time now. Our economy is in, in for some real, real trouble. And it's time today, today, to start taking more and more steps to ensure that you're going to be able to survive maybe six months to a year without any type of employment whatsoever. That needs to be your goal right now. Now, if you don't think you can get there, try. All right? That, that's all I can say. Try. Make the attempt. Do as much as you can. Reduce your cost of living as much as you can. Maximize your income as much as you can. Do whatever you can to make more and spend less and save more and stockpile. And expect our dollar to begin the weekend again. It's strengthened for a while right now. And it's going to continue to strengthen for a while, in my opinion. Remember always, I am not a financial advisor. You need to understand always that my uh, shows are one man's opinion and one man's insight. And you take that information, you do whatever you want to with it. You bounce it off your advisors, you bounce it around your brain, but you make your own decision in the end. But I'm telling you that right now, I would not be comfortable with my assets highly leveraged in the stock market. And I would not be comfortable with all my money sitting in dollars. All right? I really would not. Because I know that the dollar is going to begin to weaken again. I, I, in my heart, I feel that. I look at the segment. I look at the marketplace. I listen to the other business people that I talk to. I listen to people in a great market tell me how tough it is. I look at the average, uh, the average attitude of the American worker today. It is not the work ethic of 15 years ago. It is certainly not the work ethic of 30 years ago. When I started out after I got out of the Army back in 1993, I was willing to do anything for anybody to earn whatever they would pay me to prove myself, because I knew if I proved myself, they would pay me more. And I'm lucky, occasionally I find a person that still thinks that way, and when I do, I hire them immediately. If I cannot justify hiring them, I try to figure out how I can turn them into money immediately so I can create an opportunity to hire them. All right, because that has become so rare today. And I know that some of you guys are sitting out there going, hey, I'm still that way. 
I'll do whatever it takes to succeed, to put food on the table for my family, and I work hard. But let me ask you the case, this. Are you the majority where you work, or are you the minority where you work with that work ethic? Would you say the average person you go to work with every day is the same type of person? They work hard. They do whatever it takes to get the job done. They never say, that's not my job. They always look for how they can help, how they can improve. They think about the profit for themselves and for the company. They put the needs of the company before their own desires during the day. Or do they do just enough to keep from getting fired? See, our workforce, by and large, I would say 80% or more of our workforce is now in that mode. They're in the European mode. I do what i got to do, and I don't get fired, and I collect a paycheck at the end of the week. They do not put themselves out there. They do not see themselves as self-employed. And, and that's another point I want to drive home for you folks. You are self-employed. The day you are not profitable for your employer, when it's clear to them that you are costing them more than you are worth, you will be terminated. You will go away. They will only keep you so long to be a nice guy or because they think they need you. They figure out that you cost them $80,000 a year in total cost, and your return is 60. You're gone. Done. End of story. I can't afford you anymore. And that is the reality for everybody. When you're a salesperson, you live with a quota over your head. You know, I have to do this much to break even. I have to do this much to keep my job, and I have to do this much to make a lot of money. And a lot of people don't want to be salespeople because they realize that they're going to be judged that way. So they say, okay, I don't want to do that. I want a normal job where I just come to work, do my job, and get paid by the hour or by a salary or whatever it is. But folks, we're all self-employed. The day the market makes a change that makes you no longer profitable for your company, you go. And I think people used to be in touch with that. I think even in the 80s and a lot of the 90s, people were in touch with the fact that I have to be doing a good enough job to make my employer money or I'm going to lose my job. I think today people have been lulled in spite of the tough times to this false sense of as long as, the, as long as I show up and hold down a desk from 8 to 5, if I get laid off, it's not my fault, it's the company's fault. There's nothing I can do about it, so I might as well just show up and collect a paycheck. Again, folks, I know some of you might get, take exceptions and I said, it's not me. I'm just going to ask you once again, are you the majority of people or are you the minority of people? And I think the more you move out into urban areas, uh, or I mean, out to rural areas, the more you move out into country, the more you're into jobs where people have to physically do something that they can be judged on productivity on, the less that this is true. But our economy has moved more and more to a service-based economy and we have tons of people who go to work every day and sit in front of a computer for eight hours. And those people, a lot of times, are specialized in a certain way that their boss doesn't really completely understand their job and doesn't really want to and shouldn't have to. So how much effort do they really put in? How much do they really do? How much do they rely on the people around them to cover for their slack? Right? And, you know, and that has made American business largely inefficient today. And there are people like India, for one, that in spite of the fact that a lot of them can't communicate very well in English, they're kicking our butts from a productivity standpoint. And a company goes, I can go get somebody with a master's degree in India that specializes in a specific type of programming. They maybe they don't speak very good English, but for what I need them to do, 
they can do it just fine, and I can get them for one-third to one-quarter the cost of somebody with a bachelor's degree or lower in the United States who has a poorer worker ethic, who doesn't work as hard, and that company's making that decision to outsource. All right? That's reality. And every time the economy falters, companies are forced more and more into that type of a decision. And now they're getting into the point they're going, well, how many of these people over in India or Pakistan or China or Hong Kong do we really need? How much can we cut them? All right, folks, the cutting has begun, and it has only just begun. We're going to see companies collapse. We're going to see banks collapse. This economy is in for one of the worst experiences that it's ever had. And it's not just going to be here in America. It's going to be all over the world. But we're going to take it really hard in the teeth here, folks. We're going to take it because we have allowed these clowns running our government to run amok for almost 100 years now. And we haven't done anything about it. We haven't voted these idiots out of office, folks. You haven't done it. I haven't done it. None of us have gotten angry enough yet to grab our neighbor by the scruff of the neck and go, come on, you got to change something here. I started doing some research in the Senate. You wouldn't believe how many of these guys have been in office for 30 years or more. 30 years. It's ridiculous. Politicians in this country were never supposed to be a career as a, as a senator or a member of the House. A politician was supposed to perform a service for his nation and then go back to the private sector and have to live with the laws and the policies that he made. And that was the check on the, you know, that was the balance of power. A senator isn't going to be stupid with the law because he'll have to live with the law. But today, senators don't live with the law that they make. They stay in the Senate for 20 to 30 years. And they live in a fantasy land up in D.C., they have all their expenses paid. They have all their medical needs taken care of. They have a great retirement. And whenever they need more money, they vote themselves a raise. And whenever they need more money and they can't vote themselves a raise, they just figure out a way to spend it and call it an expense. When they can't give themselves a raise, they give themselves a raise at the spending allowance. They spend their time campaigning. The ones that know they're not going to lose, they take all that campaign money and they use it to have fun with when they go, you know, quote-unquote campaigning. Stay in nice hotels on your dime. Travel across to Europe on your dime. All right? But you can't blame them because you set up a system for them that allowed them to do it. And we've told these clowns that what they do is okay. The Congress has an approval rating in the single digits right now. The single digits. The last poll on real clear politics that I read on approval of the Congress, which is under Democratic control because we gave it to them because we were unhappy with the Republicans in the last election, is 9%. 9% approval. Now, in the 2008 elections, we're not going to see a major change of power. The Democrats may actually pick up some seats. When you have people with a 9% approval rate that do not lose their job, you, my friends, are telling them that they can do whatever they want and it doesn't matter, their job is safe. And they act just like that worker that you can't stand at work, that you want to smack in the head, but you can't, that drags butt all day long while everybody else does the work. Why? Why would you work hard if your approval rating was 9%, and you had six reviews in a row and got a raise every time you had a review and didn't lose your job, weren't even counseled, weren't even told you were in danger of losing your job, how seriously would you take the threat? You wouldn't take it seriously at all. That's where these folks are today. But, you know, that's where they're at. 
They believe they can do whatever they want because we told them they can. And until we make a change, it's not going to happen. But I got news for them. The change is coming. Because when people can't feed their families anymore, when, when the, the shit hits the fan, and folks, it isn't the end of the world scenario. The apocalypse is not coming. Not with this one, anyway. It still could. I mean, we ought to be prepared for that. That's the eventual worst-case scenario. But in this recession that we're going to see, it is not the end of the world as we know. It is not blood in the streets. Not on a large scale, anyway. But it is the shit hitting the fan for the majority of Americans. It is going to be more people listening in their house than we've ever seen. It's going to make the, the subprime meltdown look like a joke. It's going to be more people making half of the income that they used to make with all the expenses that they've had being deeply mired in debt than we've ever seen before. It's going to be massive numbers of banks and credit card companies taking massive losses when people just go, I can't pay, and I'm not paying. And I don't have anything. I have a house that's worth $180,000 that I owe $240,000 on. If you want to take it from me, I don't care. You can't go my wages because I lost my job. You can't take away the unemployment that I'm going to get for the next six months. That's who I'm going to live on. And I ain't paying you, and there's nothing you can do about it. And by and large, if you're going to destroy my credit, hey, it's already been destroyed. That's coming, folks. So we're in for some really dark times. So these four stories that I talked about, again, um, 100,000 surplus lots in the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex, more than a five-year supply, two years is typical. Um, the banks are no longer building out new locations. The title companies have ran into a wall and are having to massively cut back operations and are in massive shortfalls of revenue. And we have banks getting out of the student loan business. You know, that's what kicked off this whole recent rant. Folks, the writing's on the wall. All right? This is not a time to take things lightly. This is not a time to be a grasshopper. It may still look like it's summer out there. But the days are getting shorter, the nights are getting longer, and the snow is getting ready to fall. And I suggest you make the adjustments now. You make the decisions now while they're in your control, while you have the ability to have the greatest level of decision, right, still under your control before you do things because you have to. When you do things because you have to, you're going to do them in fear. And I do not want you to act in fear. I don't want anybody to act in fear. Don't let me scare you with these things. Just let them be reality. Because the reality is that right now, it's pretty easy to do the things that you need to do to make sure you're going to be able to come through these things all right. You know? And if it does come down to it, the first people you don't pay are the credit card bills. They say it's the case. They can't repossess your house. Right? You know? I mean, if you're completely that, you should pay your debts. My, my suggestion is pay them now while you can't pay them all off. Pay your debt down, right? But if you get to a point where you can't, you know, those are the first people you don't pay. You know, you keep the lights on, right? You keep food in the refrigerator, you keep the roof over your head. Those are your main priorities. And right now, it's pretty easy to set up a system. It's pretty easy to scale down if you have to, to sell off something. There's still people willing to buy stuff. Make the decisions now while you have the power, the ability, and the time. Store up extra preparations now while you have the time. Safeguard your money now while you have the time. If you, if you say, you know what, I don't want to completely pull out the money, pull some of it out. Put some of it in the hard assets. Put some of it in the cash. Put some of it in some, some sort of stable foreign currency. Places like you have to have a conversation with your advisor about are Canada, the United Kingdom, and Australia. All right? Those are just some suggestions. But what I'm telling you is make a decision now. 
Because remember, that's what we're all about. Living the life you want to live, time to get tough for even if they don't. I think the tough times are coming, and you need to set yourself up today for the uncertainty of tomorrow. I hope this has been a motivating podcast for you. I hope it's made you think, and I hope it's got your, your pulse raised up a little bit and put you more in touch with the reality that's out there. I know I've been asked to do more and more podcasts on the practical things you can do. We're going to go back to that this week. But I want to put you in touch with the reality of the threat. If you're not in touch with that, you're going to continue to dicker around with, what kind of survival knife do I buy? I see a lot of questions about that. What kind of survival knife do I buy? You know, what's a good main battle rifle? Hey, how about, how do I make sure that I can feed my family for the next six months if I lose my job? How, do I, how about I make sure that if I can't pay the mortgage, I still have someplace else to go? How about we handle those situations first? Because they're more likely than you need a main battle rifle or a good survival knife. Let's say that, you know, I, I'm not for making sure that you have a means of self-defense and that you have a good quality knife. Those are important, too. But, hey, set your priorities based on the most imminent threat. The dark cloud on the horizon right now is the economic future of this nation. And it ain't going to matter which one of those clouds gets elected, folks. That dark cloud is coming, and it's going to get a lot darker before the dawn comes. So, again, thank you for tuning in for today's podcast. Tune in tomorrow for something you can do to improve your lot in life and the better weather these storms are coming. You can scream and you can holler. It really doesn't matter because it all gets spent.